My name is Jason Ingber, and I'm your host. We're here with Keith Mitnick, who's going to be giving us a whirlwind of old adages that you can resurrect and use in your daily life and in your practice to up your game and value. Keith, can you give us a quick snapshot before I uh, sure. let you jump into this? This is, I call it resurrecting recognizable phrases, which is just a fancy way I came up with for don't eat the bruises that was kind of catchy, but it really is just old adages. That just didn't sound as exciting. And the idea is people have, uh, everyone's heard old adages. The beauty of an old adage when it comes to making a point or convincing someone or persuading somebody or communicating in a, in a powerful way is old adages have history. The person heard their grandparents say it, their parents say it. You've heard it your whole life. So it's trustworthy. It's coming from, you know, we have people talk about, you know, better times, whatever. It's coming from a place of trust. And it's got a warmth to it because of its familiarity. It's an old friend coming to visit you, you're glad to see. And it has instant meaning. You don't have to explain what you say something like, rather be safe than sorry. You think I got to explain that. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So, it's shorthand, and it's got this added benefit of being so trustworthy because they heard it long before you ever said it and from people they trusted. So that's got it. the idea behind it. Historical value with a punch behind all of that built-up meaning. Yep. We all know what it means. And that's why all I right. call it resurrecting because some, some of them you hear all the time. And, you know, I live in courtrooms, and I use these all the time. But some of these, you may not have used them or heard them in 10 years. So I'm resurrecting them. I'm digging them up and putting them up where they go, oh. And as soon as they go, they go, I know what that means. That makes sense to me. And now you're at a head start in convincing somebody. Without wasting a lot of time explaining it, it's memorable. They can bring it back up. It's sticky. I talk about things being sticky. It sticks to you. They can carry it into the jury room and say, yeah, but for goodness sake, should have been rather been safe than sorry. And, let me, and there's some other examples of that. Mean They all cluster. These sayings tend to cluster around a point. And the point being, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, someone having a tripping hazard on a sidewalk. We talked about that in an earlier episode. And, um, or someone goes to an ER and they go in with chest pain and they send them home. So you're fine. They have a heart attack at home. Those kind of situations all fit this cluster of those old adages. Rather be safe than sorry, which we all know means don't take unnecessary chances. And I'll use that phrase too after I've got it. Once you say rather be safe than sorry, the train's moving in the direction I want it to move. Then you can start using non-adage, non-perfect words and have a normal conversation where you're not being so careful that everything comes out of your mouth. You can freelance, talk. So you say rather be safe than sorry. You say, you know, they, they just took unnecessary chances with someone else's life. Now, let's think of the power in that one for just a minute. Unnecessary. There's chances doctors do all kinds of stuff. You're taking a chance, damn near everything they do. Unnecessary chance. You could say unreasonable chance, but unreasonable is an ambiguous term. What's unreasonable to one person is reasonable to the next. If I say unnecessary, I go, well, you goddamn sure shouldn't be doing things that are unnecessary to a patient. So, taking unnecessary chances with someone else's life. 
That reminds the jury we're talking about, look, if he wants to take chances in life, that's fine. These people trust you. They're relying on you. Don't, for God's sake, take unnecessary chances with their life. It ain't your life. It ain't your baby. So rather be safe than sorry is the catchphrase. That's the adage everybody knows. Then you start putting words on it that are your words. Like in this same segment, we're going to talk at the tail end of creating your own catchy phrases. They work just like old adages, except they're, a, they're like a... a, a Low, a poor man's old adage because they don't have all that history and trustworthy, but they're still sticky. So you get the sticky benefit by coming up with catchy phrases. You just don't mm-hmm. have the history. So rather be safe than sorry. We're on a roll. Everybody knows. Then you start adding took unnecessary chances with someone else's life. Another one we've all heard fits the same model. We've all heard, folks, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. What's that about? That's there's an apartment complex. They got a hole in the fence in several places. They got no security guard and half the lights that are supposed to make it safe at night are out and it's in a rough neighborhood. What's the defense going to be? Crime happens like this. It's too quick. It's too unpredictable. What are we supposed to do? If we'd had a lifeguard, a lifeguard, we would have a, a, a security guard. What if he was on the other side of the building? This person would have been shot and robbed already by the time he could get over. They're asking for too much. That's where you drop in one of these, like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure or headed off at the pass. What does that What's mean? What's the goal with that phraseology in the jury room? In the jury room, I want, for example, in that factual scenario, they're going to go back and say, yeah, how are they supposed to stop it? Well, my case was built around ounce of prevention and headed off at the pass to say, of course it happens so fast. You're not going to prevent it once it starts. You have to prevent it before it starts. You have to discourage the people from coming, deter them from coming on. If your fence is all tight, if your lights are on and there's a security guard marching around, the criminals don't want to go to jail, they go, I'll go down the road to that one that doesn't have a security guard. You head it off at the pass. Because why? Once it happens, no one's going to stop it. It's too quick. Now, guess what? I've just taken their whole defense because it happens too fast and made it, I say, to make matters worse. It happens so fast you can't do anything about it. So what do we do here? Why are they responsible? Because they should have got out in front of it. They know what kind of neighbor it is. They know that they need to rather be safe than sorry. They understand that an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. Just head it off at the pass. I've just thrown three of them in. Something's sticking with somebody. Anytime then that you're trying to head off someone in that way, you could you could use that label. Sure. You know, Anytime you to... you're trying to convey, like, you should have just gotten ahead of this, you say that label. Right. You're, look, your son comes home and flunks a test. And they say, you know, that was a really hard test. I, Mom, you know I studied really hard last night. You say, all right, but, you know, you could head that off at the pass because you started last night at 9 and went to bed at 1030 and you knew about the test all week. How about we start studying a couple days earlier and head it off the pass? Because if you wait to the last minute, you may not have time that it sticks in your mind. Start earlier. Head the F off at the pass. You know, it, all these work. So when you're trying to communicate to somebody where you want to, you ought to get out ahead of it and head it off. Nip it in the bud. That's another one. Nip it in the bud. Mm-hmm. Nip it in the bud before mm-hmm. it ever starts. 
you know, some mm-hmm. someone's, um, um, you know, your daughter's dating some guy who's a bad apple and you know it. What are you talking to your husband about? We, what are we going to do? We got to nip this in the bud. <laughs> we don't want to marry that jackass. So all those phrases work. It's just a, it's like a little atomic nuclear reactor. It's small, it's short, it's fast, and it's so potent. Mm-hmm. So, what other what other adages are we um, uh, going to learn today? Well, I did. Don't take unnecessary chances already with someone else's health. Um, how about? Here's one that fits. I'm going to give you again a cluster of them. Terms for let let's take the doctors have a team, and it just it did they not a damn one of them did the right thing, and all of them should have picked it up. And no one did. And the defense is defending that. You wind up you wind up litigating med mal cases on top of just oh, um, all the time. car crash cases. Oh, God, I do. I do product cases, mass tort cases, um, business. We call it business trial group. We're hired on a You did mass tort thing. pharmaceuticals? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's not a case can out you, there that I haven't tried probably. That's a civil can you, lawsuit. Continue. Can you shoehorn the mass tort pharmaceutical into what you're talking about now in any story or something that you would remember from that? It's yeah, just I mean, a fascinating you could, you know, you area could, of law. I mean, that one fits. They didn't do all the testing they should. They got with the FDA. They held some stuff back. They didn't show this to the FDA. Yes, it got approved, but it was kind of a little sleight of hand how it got approved. Everyone knows what sleight of hands means. Everyone knows that's a magician. It's a magic trick. You can say the way they got it through is a bit of a magic trick. They wave the wand over here and they palm the quarter over here. And they said, it looks, that wand looks real good. Sure, you're approved. But you can't hide behind what the FDA said when they were not an open book. There's another one with the FDA. They were not an open book. So, and then if you're, you're in with a, someone goes to the hospital, they see the internist at the hospital, that's the hospitalist. They see the specialist who's an infectious disease, and they see the surgeon. And everybody blew, screwing around. There was a tumor. Now the cancer's beyond treatment. And you got to sue all three of them because what do they do? They, their defense is, you think they all just dropped? They all missed it? Mm-hmm. It wasn't there to be caught reasonably. They're all just committing malpractice, all three of these fine local doctors, and they, they take comfort in number. So what do you do back to that? Well, this is where some of these adages fit. Well, there are too many cooks in the kitchen. Left hand didn't know what the right was doing. It slipped through the cracks because nobody was paying attention. And here's another one that fits that, that very well. This is actually, I'm skipping ahead, this is not an old adage. This is a phrase, a catchy phrase that sounds, it's sticky and sounds like it ought to be an adage. It, this is one that, that um, um, then Morgan came up with. If everyone's responsible, no one's responsible. What's that mean? In other words, you better assign someone to make sure this gets done. Not just, folks, there's a room of eight people. We need to get this done. Everybody agree? Yeah, okay, walk out. Who the hell's going to do it? If everyone's responsible. And the answer is everybody was supposed to do it. Guess what? Everyone thought the guy sitting there and the lady the other side was going to do it, so no one did it. It comes up in... in uh, slip and fall cases in grocery stores all the time. 
they come in and say, our policy is any employee of ours, when they move through the store, they're supposed to be checking the floor for any foreign substances that may be slick and be calling in for help and standing there. So we have a very good policy because it involves everyone. Well, guess what? You get their corporate representative up and say, have you ever heard of the saying, um, if everyone's responsible, no one's responsible? You understand what happens. The person in front of you walking through the store is figuring the one behind him is going to do it. And the one behind him who's taking notes figures the stock boy in front of me is going to do it. Nobody does it. That policy was for your protection, not your customers, so you could hide behind it in this courtroom and make it sound like you were actually being careful when, in fact, it does nothing. It's worthless. If anything, it makes it more dangerous because everybody can pass the buck to some pass the buck to somebody else. So, and how do we know? Proofs in the pudding. I love proofs in the pudding. What you're saying is, look, you can't say every act, every outcome was because of X. That's another saying. Monday morning quarterbacking. It's easy to say you do something different after you know the outcome, but some things, in all likelihood, don't happen if you did it right. And the proofs in the pudding. Look what happened. Proofs in the pudding. Okay, I I, I love that one, and I know you've used that one. The responsible everybody. If no one is responsible, then everybody is responsible. Or the op opposite. I got, if, I gotta every, ask. if everyone is responsible, no one is. If every excuse me, if everyone's responsible, then no one is. I gotta ask though, does that make you more inclined to want only a judge to try your cases no. or a jury? It depends on I mean, the judge. Because a jury, everyone could pass the buck. A judge has got to be responsible for yeah. bringing back a verdict you want. I just believe in the jury system, even though sometimes it's broken my heart. Overall, it works, and it depends on the judge. But if it's a judge that I really trust to do the right thing and they're smart and fair and conscientious, I would go often on a judge trial. But on that case, the defense is never going to agree. They're going to want the jury trial. And if it's a judge I'm not as enamored with, I don't want them deciding the outcome of the case. I'll take those jurors. So rarely do you try. Occasionally we do. But it, you're 90, 98% of your trials or, or what jury. percentage of your trials aren't jury? 99.9. Huh. .9. I don't do a lot of It's called bench trial. I don't do a lot of bench trials um but um actions speak louder than words is a great one actions speak louder than words everybody knows what it means i know he said that he didn't run the red light and hit us but he left the scene mm -hmm. why did he take off if he didn't do anything wrong he'd be there for one to tell the police officer it wasn't my fault this person cut me off that's their story why did he run actions speak louder than words and everybody goes you know what your actions are bullshit your, I mean, your, your words are bullshit. Your actions, so you wouldn't have run. I've done it in lawsuits with doctors where suddenly mm -hmm. they've changed a record. And you caught them because we can go do these searches through the computers and find stuff been changed. Um, and, and so now you know they changed the record. They'll have an explanation, but it looks bad. And you get up and say, you know, actions speak louder than words. He said he did nothing wrong. He did it by the book. Why would he change mm -hmm. the records? Why would he change those two words if he did it right? You don't need you don't need an expert witness to tell you. You know from your common experience in life, actions speak mm -hmm. louder than words. His actions are somebody that had something to hide, not a, somebody that's an open book. I did everything by the book. I'm just, mm -hmm. There's a bunch of string of them in there that just kind of come to me naturally because I use them so much. But um, so let's go to um, 
let's go to some of these catchy phrases you make up yourself. Those are I can go on and on with the actual old adages. You get so now you're going to give a formula to create your own catchy phrases. No, I'm going to give. I have a formula for how to come up in our next segment. We're going to talk about the real tapping into the real power of analogies, and I have a formula uh -huh. for those. Uh -huh. I need to. I'm glad you said that though. I need to really work on a, a formula to figure out something that I can pass on that makes it more reliable and easier to access these creating your own catchy phrases. I have not done You're that. You're so into that, creating a process so there's logistics I and am. structure around your wisdom. I think we could do it live. Let's try and figure out and sharpen with whatever tools you're about to give me right now. And see All right, how I'll run I can through them, and as I go through, I'll be thinking, is there some, uh, some steps that come to mind? I'll keep that in the back mm -hmm. of my mind. Um, we just did one. The grocery store policy, everybody looks all the time when they're moving. That if everyone's responsible, no one's responsible. Like I said, I didn't come up with that one. Morgan did, talking about within the firm. But mm -hmm. it, it applies all over the place. But here's another one. And I believe we talked about this in an earlier episode. Your client sitting in court and doesn't look hurt. Your client is on Facebook looking like they're having the time of their life. And your client mm -hmm. really has a herniated disc in there and significant pain but it's not the kind of injury interferes so much with the doing as the experience of doing and it's it's really dampening the enjoyment of life that kind of case there's here's a phrase that i came up to get that point across two of them actually catchy it's not cane pain it's pilot like pain now everyone knows what a pilot look i had someone in an audience i was speaking say how do you know if, if you got younger jurors they may not know what a pilot light was and i went you know and i'm showing my age right they said, maybe you can come up with something else. And I, I, I took it to heart and I thought about it. I always say, I don't want to be right. I want to get it right. So I thought, you know, he's got a good point. And then I thought there isn't a better way to say it, but I need to practice a little preventative medicine here. I need to say to the jurors, for those of you that are old enough, you all know about pilot light. It's always there flickering in those old gas stoves or, the, or in the hot water heater. You turn them off. It doesn't go out. There's that little thing flickering. Then you turn it up, and my client lives between the flickering and the pilot light, depending on these choices made. And my client has had to, they have this injury has taken away my client's freedom to live life without having to make all those choices, do or don't do. And if I don't do, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to have done without something I want to do and would have done. If I do do, I'm going to suffer the consequence and end up on a heating pad. So you run through all that, but at the whole core of that is cane pain. It sticks. Why? It's Why? not cane pain. It's like the home Wi-Fi. It's always there and always on, but it doesn't flare up unless it's pressed. Exactly. Cane pain, another, home Wi-Fi. That, that is a very good. I like that. That's a, for the younger jurors, makes that point. So, mm -hmm. but cane pain, why does cane pain work? Because, A, I want to get the, uh, uh, the picture... The fact that he's not using a cane getting around doesn't mean shit. And, and, and you're thinking he doesn't look hurt because you're saying he ought to have a cane. Well, this isn't that kind of injury. That doesn't mean it's not a big deal. It is a very big deal. Mm -hmm. So, But it's rhyming. Why do you think all the kids' stories and all have rhymes and a lot of the poetry is in rhyming? Why in rap, it's all got rhyming in it. A lot of songs have rhyming in it. Rhyming works. We are, we are taught to react positively to rhyme. Part of it is it's sticky. Rhymes stick. You can't, you know, how many people will ever forget if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. It was catchy as shit. 
And I know Johnny Cochran. I actually tried a case where he sat in the audience, and, and it was a case he had tried the first time, and I retried it because we were in an area that we were afraid his notoriety was going to play poor with some of our jurors. And so on the retrial, I tried it. And um, I had him come up and whisper in my ear, and I said, I got something from my uh, from Johnny Cochran, my friend here, that he wants me to share with you. And, you know, so we ended up, you know, giving him, because it ended up we had a lot of African-Americans on the jury. So it was a became a positive, but I'm all the way deep in the case. So, you know, he couldn't come You back. guys planned that out, that he would come whisper in your we, ear? I planned out him coming you. after I got in there. I called up John Morgan. I said, John, we were in the middle of this trial, and I believe this jury that we were keeping Cochran away, I think it will be a benefit. Can you get him here? And he got there. I don't want to get it right. I don't want to be right. I want to get it right. Yeah, that's Keith, my own catchy phrase. That's Keith getting it. That's practicing what you preach right there. So cane pain, it rhymes, it sticks. Now you got to be careful because there are people who uh, there are people who applauded that verdict in OJ. There are people that that hated it. So I you got to don't get so catchy that it sounds like that damn the glove don't fit. You must quit. But you could still do rhymes. You just got to be careful it doesn't get a little too much and sappy and like you're being some, you know, silver tongue devil. You got to be, they got to come from the heart. They got to be sincere and they got to be not too syrupy. But there are a lot of them. Here's one that I, I came up with a couple of years ago and I love it. In the courtroom, they are often suggesting that your client may not really be hurt. They may be faking. They, you rarely say it. Why? Because they're afraid it's going to backfire. They're afraid that you're going to offend jurors that just calling this person a fraud. So they hint at it. And I've sat in the court and watched him hint and never say it. And honestly, it's like that was a big thing of Rick Friedman's uh, Polarizing the Jury, which is a fantastic book. And, um, and Rick's a friend. And, and, and his point overall overarching in that included this. Don't let them get away with acting like they're really being classy and nice when they're really doing nasty things. Call it out. That's polarizing the jury. Let's put it at the opposite. So... My phrase that I came up with that is the same kind of concept as polarizing the jury on these points is the courtroom is not a place for hinting. It's a place for saying what you mean and backing it up. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a particularly feeling good about yourself, you could add on the end of it, courtroom is not a place for hinting. It's a place for saying what you mean and backing it up or hush up. And, the point, and then I'll say in closing, well, they've never said it, but they've been hinting at the whole trial. They want you to believe something they don't believe in enough to even utter it out of their own mouth. That tells you all you need to know. Why? You've heard me say it at the beginning of the case. Courtroom's not a place for hinting. It's a place for sandwich me and backing up. If you can't back it up, then hush up because there isn't any proof. So stop it. And it's a powerful. And that courtroom is a place for hinting. Is not a place for hinting. It's a place for sandwich me and backing it up. It just flows. There's an iteration to it. It doesn't rhyme. But it's got that quality that it's a memorable kind of like a say. Um, here's another one. When somebody gets caught and they won't, won't own up, like I catch the doctor changing the medical record, he's got a million excuses. So rather than own up, he's trying to cover up. That's got the rhyme. Rather than own up, he's trying to cover up. Um, here's another one. So the jury understands this is a forever injury. I say to the jury. When I'm talking damages, this is a verdict for all time. I've said it so much, it is an old adage to me. But, mm -hmm. but it comes, it's memorable, it's short, it's catchy, and it's sticky. 
This is a verdict for all time. Now, here's another one. We don't come back in 10, 20, 30 years and do an update, jury. We get it right now or we don't get it right at all. We get it right now or we don't get it right at all. Now, when they go to deliberate and someone says, well, that's enough money, say, well, maybe for what happened in the past, but this is a verdict for all time. And if we don't get it right now, we don't get it right at all. You know, this is a verdict for all time. And so we got to, we aren't even considering what are when they turn 50 and 60 and 70, if they make it to 80. So it is a catchy phrase. So when the juror goes back to deliberate, those jurors who have, have seen the light and are on your side can help persuade other jurors who are led astray by the defense to come back on or at least take the wind out of their sails so they're less motivated to fight to the bitter end. They say, all right, fine, well, I want to go home. So you you got to... I consider them like giving little packages, little wrapped up packages that are inside them sound bites, it's like sending a tape recorder back to your jurors. They can open it up whenever they need it and repeat it. And it's almost like you're a ventriloquist. It's like just, a, just a, a belt of hand grenades. I'm just giving those jurors who passionately know we're right and we are right, I'm helping them with phrases that may work with the other jurors at a point in time where those jurors made up their mind and the ones that are against us aren't listening to the damn thing I got to say. But you know where they will listen to? A fellow juror during deliberation. So I'm, I'm putting the, I'm arming my jurors to, to, to do the work of justice and I'm hopefully taking the wind out of the sails of the ones against us, maybe change their mind, but at least prepare them that they're not as excited about fighting forever so that the good jurors that are that have seen the way have a less resistance in getting there. So Love here's one, I can, a couple more. Someone, Please. Yeah, you got, okay. Somebody is at a, a red light, I mean, a, a, off on a little side road. Our clients come and note, there's no stop sign for our client. They had the stop sign. And they're behind some bushes and can't see our client coming. And the person's defense was, I can't see back that far. I could never pull out. So I started to pull out, and they tried to say, if your client wasn't speeding, then we'd have been fine. Our client wasn't speeding, but they hired someone to make it up. But in any event, so I came up with one of those catchy little phrases for that case, and I've used it many times since, where somebody's defense, in fairness, they really couldn't see well. Well, the answer is, if you don't know, don't go. If you don't know, don't go. Go go down another street. You cannot just roll the dice and play Russian roulette because you can't see. If you don't know, don't go. Mm -hmm. and, I, and we won that case big and righteously. And I guarantee you there were jurors said to somebody back there, yeah, if you don't know, don't go. I don't want to hear about how you couldn't see. I didn't give them license to just pull out in front of them and wreak mayhem on the motoring public. So, and here's one. Um, and, and I'll do a couple more and then we'll, we, we can wrap it up. Um, There was, um, I have cases against cigarette companies, and the defense is choice, choice, choice. That is one of the most powerful words I've ever seen in litigation. They can win, the, they're defending someone who smoked a bunch of years, and while they were back then doing everything in their power to downgrade the threat level, people would have heard something back then, and they kept smoking. And they say, well, that's their choice. Everybody, you remember, everybody has believes in choice. What's choice mean? Personal responsibility. You've made choices. Now you died from cancer. Don't blame the cigarette company. And it's a 
Choice may be the single most powerful word I've ever faced in the court that cigarette industry came up with, and I've come up with a bunch of ways to deal with it. But it's still, it's a force of nature. That is a powerful word. Well, I came up with something that can be used in any arena when the word choice is being used against you. And it's this. Choices are not made in a vacuum. They are a product of circumstances. Choices are not made in a vacuum. They are a product of circumstances. We all know that. Let me give you some examples. On a hot day, you wear a sweater, not a t-shirt. On when it's third and inches in a football game, they may try to trick them and throw a long pass. Odds are they're going to run it. If it's third and 20, they may try to trick them with a draw run, but they're probably throwing a long pass. If still just one more in football, if you're ahead by three touchdowns, there's a minute left and you just scored, you do not do an onside kick. But if you're down by a touchdown and you just scored and there's a minute left, pretty good chance you're going to do an onside kick. Choices. Every one of those was a choice. What coat I wore. Here's another one. On a cold day, most people have hot drinks. On a hot day, most people have iced drinks. All of those were choices. Circumstances. Can you talk, can you talk about the choices you make in the clothing you wear as oh, you go yeah. through a trial? Well, sure. I, you know, different. I just spoke at something at the National um, Trial Lawyers Association down, and it's called the Trial Lawyers Summit. you, you got to get me invited to that group. Yeah, I'll get you next year. We just did it. It was a great, great outing. A bunch of really good speakers and um, a huge turnout. It was a great event. But in any right. event, um, Lisa Blue, who's a great lawyer, has written books on all kinds of things. In particular, she's jury selection um, out of Texas, and she's just a, a, a class Lisa act. Bloom? Lisa Blue, as in the color blue. Very, very good lawyer, been doing it a long time, um, and just a good person. And um, she was up talking about what to wear, and she laughed because she asked, could she go in front of me because she had to go pick up some granddaughter or somebody and had to leave earlier. Could you mind if I go? I'm only going 30 minutes. So I said, of course, go. So, but she laughed before she walked off. She thanked me and said, it's funny you're wearing a brown suit. And I thought, why is she saying that? She got up on stage, and one of the things she talked about is dressing and how you gotta don't, don't you got to look powerful and strong, and you don't want to wear earth tones. You want to wear these powerful power suits and ties, and, and she wears a red dress because you stand up and, Actually, it got me thinking because she put up pictures. There are a bunch of people on a stage, and one of them's in a red outfit, and they stand out. Someone was in a different color, and it was a tan color, and they stood out the worst way. They kind of disappeared with all the power. And and to me, and, and I believe in that all those little nuances are worth talking about. But honestly, to me, I use, and I don't, who knows? Lisa may be right. I may need to go get me a red suit, but um, she wouldn't say it. It could be what works for her. It, could it be works for her. She's teaching her. it. And, and I have enough respect for it, I'm, I'm thinking about it. But here's my current thought. I wear brown, like just like I got on today, for jury selection. I've worn this suit in so many jury selections. Why? Because I worry that jurors are going to think we're come in thinking we're powerful, strong, bullies, kind of negative things that a charcoal gray or navy suit, I would just look like a corporate suit. And I don't want to look, I'm not, frankly, in life, 
I wear brown more than any. I wear brown or black, but I wear a lot of brown. I just like brown, and it really is who I am. But with the jury, they meet you, and you're in a brown suit. You're not what they thought. You look a little different than I expected. And I think that helps bridge some of these negative connotations that wouldn't be fair, but they're bringing them forward because they haven't met me yet. So while we're getting to know each other, let me dress not like the jackass you think I might have been because I'm not that person. So the brown to me is approachable, and it's not, not, I'm not trying to march around and, and own the courtroom. Mm -hmm. I do want to own the courtroom. I don't want to act like I'm a jackass doing it. Um, second day, I usually wear an olive for opening because... Again, we're still getting to know one another. Time we've finished opening and jury selection opening, if they haven't kind of got to know me, we haven't we haven't broken what do you call it icebreaker hadn't happened. I'm in trouble. Um, By the end, you're wearing LED lights on top of a top. No, no, I don't. But what like for example, I do cross examinations. I wear gray or black. If it's a big cross, it's black. You know, it's like you're the Undertaker. I'm, I'm, we're doing serious, <laughs> lethal business today, and I feel in a black suit or a, a charcoal gray suit. You look serious. I just don't want to look like that uptight, serious guy. But now I want the witness to go, I got a force of nature coming at me and he looks pretty serious. And in closing, I usually switch to, to, to navy blue because it gives you, a, it's an authoritative look. And so I want, I'm, I need to have authority talking to him. I'm not going to get authority because I put on a blue suit, but why not have something that fits well with the authority I hope I've gained by shooting straight with the jury the whole trial. So, so, um, love it. That love it. is amazing. Now we've done old adages and we've done creating your own, basically old adages, these catchy phrases, they move the needle for you. And next, in the next series sequence, we're going to do one of my favorite topics of all time, which is the tapping into the real power of analogies. It's a fun one and it's a real difference maker. So let's, I'm going to say goodbye for today and look forward to the next one. This was amazing. Thank you so much. Drenching, drenched in uh, wisdom. Open book versus sleight of hand. Unreasonable is ambiguous. I think we should title this series Who the Blank Needs Law School. Here's Keith. <laughs> I think Morgan's bold enough with their marketing to do something like that. And I'm, I'm serious because you learn about reasonableness as a golden standard in law school. As a young lawyer, I, I still have a vivid memory of that in torts, in contract, everything. But you are saying in the real world, you got to be very intentional with how you craft your adages, how they pack a punch. And I loved all of them. Yeah, Ounce of I'll care. Give you one on that. We're all tart to say he failed to use reasonable care. He was mm -hmm. negligence, which means failure mm -hmm. to use reasonable care. That is so boring. It's so ambiguous and what the hell is negligence in it? How about he failed to do his job right? Everyone knows Amazing. I got a job to do and I better do it right. I don't need some legal standard. I say we have to prove they were negligent, which means fail to use reasonable care, which simply means on that day on the road, he didn't do his job right. On that day in the hospital, that doctor did not do his job right. I love it. Is it fair then to say that whenever you have a legal standard or some sort of legalese, that's a flag to figure out either an adage or a catchy phrase from yourself? Absolutely. Doctor failed to meet the prevailing standard of care. What in the hell does that mean? And by the mm -hmm. way, 
there's no book you can go out and say, here's the standard of care. So how do you get the point across in a way the jury can sink their teeth in and get it? Look, it's, he failed to use reasonable care, what was expected of a reasonably careful doctor under the circumstance. You know what that just means? There's certain, minimum, job, right. there's certain minimum standards to be careful and safe that they're supposed mm -hmm. to do. And he just didn't even come, did just, I'm not talking about way up here, just basics, fundamental ABCs. He didn't do his job right. Amazing. So, Amazing. Thank you so much, Keith. I really enjoyed it, as always. Can't wait fun. for the next one. Me Thank either. you. Bye.